On this episode, Surf Films, directing Bill Murray, and being a filmmaker in the digital age. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Hello, listeners. Uh, so just a little note, we recorded this episode back in November of last year, and at the time, there was an embargo on announcing the series that our guest, Jason Boffa, was producing. So uh, here's a quick look, couple thoughts from him just to set it up, and then we'll jump into the interview. The series is called Chasing Waves, uh, produced with Station 10 and Boardwalk Pictures. Boardwalk does Chess Table, one of my favorite shows, and it's on the Disney Plus worldwide platform. So it's an exciting time. Eight episodes uh, to look at surfing through the lens of uh, people from and related to Japan and taking a look at the Olympics and the reverberations of the Olympic debut of surfing, which is the first time ever in 2020 Tokyo Olympics, and the cultural impact that's had on the global surf stage. You know, there's a few shows on premium streaming channels right now about surfing, so it's it's exciting if you're into surfing and, and or interested. And I think what's what I love about ours, thinking of those other shows that are very competition-focused, yeah, we look at the Olympics and other parts of competitive surfing and these Japanese characters, but we also really take a deeper look on kind of what it is to be a surfer right now. Uh, episode five, I told my longtime editor, Carl Kramer, who worked on this series and all my movies, that I think it's some of the best work he's ever done. Uh, and it looks at Fukushima and the the tsunami, the power of the ocean, uh, but then also the radiation and, and kind of the story of a surfer who had a surf shop that was absolutely destroyed. Uh, the town was destroyed and he felt the need to move back and get back in the ocean because he said without that, you know, his life was meaningless. And I, I think insight like that is something I haven't really seen or been able to do with my other surf projects. And, and those are the moments I'm really proud of and I'm super excited to share with the worldwide community. And without further ado, here's the interview. Well, hello everyone and welcome to the Almost There Adventure podcast. I'm I'm pretty excited because we have not only an amazingly talented filmmaker and artist, but also a long, long-time friend of mine uh, from way back in college joining us today. Uh, everyone, this uh, we have Jason Boffa today. Jason, welcome to the show. I am equally excited, Fitzy. This is really cool, so thank you. I don't know, you guys... You tend to have people who hike and do cool stuff, and I, I don't know if you, maybe you sold me poorly to your friends here, because you know the furthest you'll see me is probably out on a surfboard or a paddleboard. But um, this is fun. I'm, I'm stoked to connect with you guys and your audience. So thank you. Yeah, well, we've had a lot of a lot of water stuff on the show. You know, way too <laughs> okay. much stand up, way too much stand up paddleboarding for my taste, because it just doesn't look fun to me. And every episode, we seem to talk about it. So we've had surfers, a lot of surfers in the past. And so you're not the first of anything, filmmakers, everything. So you fit all the bills, and you're, you know, surfing is an outdoor pursuit, so it is more than welcome, and we're we're, we're super excited to have you. Why don't you just do a little bit? I guess I do know you quite well, but why don't you do a good rundown? For our audience of who you are, what you do, what you've done, and everything like that. Holy smokes, a, a pitch. Um, well, I guess these <laughs> days I go by filmmaker. Um, 
I, uh, I grew up and fell in love with film early and, and probably, you know, had, had the idea that it would be a big Hollywood career. And when I met you, uh, Jason, in film school, uh, we had fun making movies. And uh, about that same time, my surfing obsession fully took me over along with keg parties and chasing girls. And my Hollywood career, kind of that interest took a bit of a backseat. And I was lucky that, um, you know, kind of all the interests came together in my 20s and I fell onto a TV series called Blue Torch that was on the Fox Sports umbrella. And we were one of the first action sports magazine series. So we were doing about an hour of content five days a week. A lot of it was shot by outside filmmakers and we would package it. I was a show producer and I got to do a lot of the surf stuff because I was the guy in house who loved surfing. And um after a year and a half of that, I thought, gosh, making TV is kind of a slog. And I always wanted to make films. Someone said, do what you know. I'm going to make a surf film. Um, so I, I cut loose and did my first kind of independent finance 16 millimeter film called Single Fin Yellow that follows one surfboard around the world while shared with friends. Um, and it's a longboard, so it's kind of a nod to surf history and where it came from. And that kind of set me off on that path, you know, one led to the second film and then the third film and, uh, and then a fourth documentary. And, um, that kind of opened the door to doing, you know, as, as all, I think good people who love filmmaking and surfing find out eventually surf films maybe aren't the business model to raise a family with. Uh, and so I started doing commercials and directing commercials and, um, kind of really recently, just went back to the TV world and I'm executive producer and director on a documentary TV series. So, you know, if there's cameras involved and often surfing, but not always, I tend to be somewhere nearby. I just want to make it clear for our audience. I was not present for any of the keg drinking or girl chasing <laughs> while we were in college. Lies. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not true. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we were one of the fun. We were, there was like a little, group of people that sort of did both the college life and the film thing. And, and there was only a few of us and the and then, like the whole rest of them were out talking about philosophy and, and things like that. And, and <laughs> yeah, we, that is true. We and if you track our careers, it is kind of interesting, you know, you've done yeah. some very unique and interesting things. And we, um, we aren't making music videos like other people we went to school with, but yeah. Hey. Yeah. Well, I think it was neat too. Cause you, what's neat is like, for me to see you now, because it's like you always made surf movies. I remember, was it the the prune, right? What was it something prune? What was good. it called? It's uh, effortless prune. Yes, and you know, so like, you know, the fact that that's what you were doing in film school, and you were able to go out and and you know make somewhat of something of a career that you can almost raise a family on and do <laughs> with it. You, know, you have to slum it down on TV with us sometimes, but you know, that, that, I mean, that's just <laughs> no, kind of amazing, no. and it's it's been like an amazing thing, you know, watch and you know, just super proud of you for all of that. You know, it, yeah. it's been super exciting. Um, well, you, you. kind of you did talk a little bit about Single Fin Yellow. You want to just maybe kind of like talk about your other films since then. Yeah, after after that film, I jumped right into um, while I was producing TV shows, I got to know a guy named Mark Jeremiah, became a good friend, and he helped produce Single Fin Yellow. And when I finished that, he was eager to do a surf film. And so we decided to co-direct a project called One California Day, which at that time, you know, this is now 2004-ish, California wasn't really on the map like it is now as kind of this surf haven. It's always been a big part of surf culture, but the surf industry was looking at Indonesia and Hawaii and these more exotic places. So we kind of 
we kind of looked in, inward and again, shot film. That one was on Super 16 and spent, you know, three, four years putting it together. And, you know, just again, I think luck of timing, Singleton Yellow timed right for what it was. And One California Day captured our surf scene where people were starting to embrace writing multiple boards. And we had a few legends involved who were older voices um, who have since passed on. And, you know, just things that were kind of magical and it fit together and it became really well received in the, in the surfing world, maybe of all my projects, one of the best received. Um, so it was a, you know, it, it was, it wasn't an easy one to do because it was a bit of a slog shooting California. There's a reason you go to Indonesia for your new marketing campaign in the surf industry, because you're going to score. But um, we put the hard work in and, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of it. Um, and that opened then, kind of the door for commercials. And I did commercials for a while and felt a little bit like I was selling my soul to the devil. And so uh, the opportunity came up through a guy named Chris Del Moro, a pro surfer, environmentalist artist to shoot a project in Italy. Uh, Chris's family is from Italy. My dad was from Italy and he kind of pitched me on the idea of a, a quasi surf lifestyle film in Italy that he didn't want to be in. And I said, well, I'll do it, but you got to be the star of it. So we sort of trapped Chris reconnecting with his Italian roots, which for me was, a, you know, a, um, a selfish way to do the same, uh, even though I was behind the camera. So that film's called Bella Vita. That came out in 2014. One California Day came out in 2007. And uh, went back to doing commercials, and then I got roped in through an outside producer who was a big fan of golf to direct for him and with him the first ever look at um, the golf caddies is from a feature documentary standpoint. And that film's called Loopers, uh, The Caddy's Long Walk. And that was the one that I worked a lot with my longtime commercial collaborator, Tyler Emmett, who you guys got to talk with. Yeah. And also the film that famously got us to meet Bill Murray. And yep. <laughs> eventually, uh, after a lot of blood, sweat, tears, prayers, and whiskey, get Bill to do the narration, which was huge. Huge. I mean, really, uh, if you if you have that on your resume, Bill, that's like, right, you, what else do you need? You know, all that does, none of it really matters other than Bill Murray did the VO on on your movie. You know, and my retire my, now. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my long winded cocktail napkin speech. When people ask, what was it like? I always allude to making one California day. And there's a family who's up in the Santa Barbara area, the Malloy family who are mm -hmm. famous in the surfing world, but are really cowboys at heart. And one of the first days I shot with them, they threw me on a horse and we're like, okay, we're going up the Cespi. And Chris Malloy's like, yeah, just the horse will follow. It's a smart horse. And I've got my Bolex and I'm like, oh yeah. And, as soon as I ripped a shot, that horse just leapt and bolted and tried to throw me in a river, right? And I was like, oh God, these guys just set me up. And that's kind of what it felt like directing Bill Murray to do a voiceover. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> this horse is going to do whatever it wants and I am along for the ride. Um, but that's the brilliance of Bill Murray, you know? Absolutely a pleasure. And he curtailed the read. And he's like, yeah, I'm done. And I'm like, ah, we might want to do a couple of things. He's like, no, I'm good. I'm done. But you guys need to see town. You want to get in my car and I'll give you a tour? And he throws me and the producer in and ends up giving us a tour of the zone in the most Bill Murray-esque of ways that was more time spent than was spent on the physical recording of the movie. So, you know, I got that going for me, which is nice. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome.
That's pretty cool. So you you mentioned a Bolex. We should maybe clarify for our audience what a Bolex is, because you and I know, but I'm I don't know if Severia and Jeff, let alone most of our audience, know. I have yeah. no idea. A yeah. Bolex. Yeah. The Bolex. And why would it scare the horse? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a it's a it's a crank wind uh, 16 millimeter film camera. Same camera Got Bruce it. Brown used to shoot the Endless Summer. Um, really, I think put through its paces, Jace, in, during yeah. the war. Yeah. As uh, a battlefield camera, and it's the one you've maybe seen it. It's you know kind of about the size of a football, and it's got a turret in the front, so you would have maybe three lens choices, and the photographer could spin them. And you know, since then we've hot rodded them, and mine has a little motor on it and a battery pack. But it's all. I mean, I think that camera was built in 59 or 61 and um there's a guy named Dieter who's now probably in his late 80s in Arizona who still fixes them and oh really um they really are I mean of any camera I've used so battle tested and tried and true and um yeah I used it on two of my films and a little bit on Bella Vita but definitely single from yellow one come for a day and um it's you know the world of film we we miss it, but there's a lot of positives about digital too, I guess. So yeah, I, I have one too. I don't know, I've, and I've never used it, and, I, and I'm so ashamed of myself because I've had it for like 15 years. But I, I, I would always bid on them on eBay, and I never thought, you know, <laughs> I always would lose. Like someone would poach me at the last minute, and I threw in like a really low ball bid, and the guy had the auction ended at like 9 a.m. on Christmas morning. So like no, <laughs> so nobody uh, else bid on. It. I got yeah, it for like yeah. 80 bucks, and it works. I just haven't had a chance to do it, I, and I've heard they're. They're splitting 35 millimeter film now, so you can, uh, you know, now you can still buy it. So I've been meaning to shoot something with it forever, and I just haven't, but I need to. But the neat thing is they're sprung, they're 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 run with they're, it's like a winded, it's a spring. You so wind like, it up. right, so you don't need electricity, you don't need anything. Now you can't do sync audio, so you couldn't shoot interviews with it. They they make motors. Is your motor do sync, Jason? Yeah, crystal sync. Okay, yeah, yeah so. So this is very in the woods, of course, but you know you can't sync audio to the to the spring motor one, but you can shoot everything else, and it's it's you know perfectly fine. You just can't couldn't shoot an interview or whatever with it unless you have this fixed like this tweak uh, hacked thing. Yeah, I got a question. So uh, we were talking a little bit before you joined us before the show uh, about sort of like you know the differences between shooting digitally or shooting with film, and I, I was relating it to how like. When I first hiked the John Muir Trail in 1980, I carried an old, you know, Konica 35 millimeter, you know, SLR, and I had so many rolls of film, you know, and and so I had to like carefully measure out, you know, like, well, wait a minute, we got you know five days left on the trail, and I have you know 22 shots left, you know, that I can take, you know, or whatever. I'm down to my last roll, and and uh, so I had to be very choosy you know in particular about what shots i took and the thing that you know of course you know the, the most recent time i did that i i used my iphone or something i mean it was ridiculous it's so easy and you know you can uh you don't think it too much about taking multiple pictures all the time and i'm wondering you know like what why would you as a filmmaker choose to use film versus digital and you know you talked a little bit about that there are advantages to both what are those differences? Yeah, you know, you're, you're 100% right on kind of the judicious approach to shooting film, whether it's the physicality of you're in a remote area. I mean, with the Bolex, one neat thing was the windup. You didn't need to charge a battery. So you could go, you know, down to Baja 
and and continue to shoot as long as you had film stock. But you know, for me, when I went off to make Single Fin Yellow, it was around it was just kind of 2001. Uh, the world had obviously gone through a, a bit of a shift after 9/11, and I um I didn't feel at that time for my aesthetic the look of the the available digital you know cameras that I could have used were up to par with what I wanted a movie to look like if if that makes sense um you know I think for the TV series we were using the the PD150 it was kind of a mini DVD world mini DV world and um nothing against that look I know some young kids you know skate filmmakers sometimes go back to that stuff and embrace it but for me it just wasn't right and that film in particular is a real nod to kind of you know the board I had made that the people share is a bit of a nod to like a 1967 surfboard uh, shaped by my good friend, Tyler Hatzikian, who kind of specializes in what he calls progressive traditional design. So he kind of takes something old and is taking it to a point without using like super modern influences. So just with that kind of being the framework of the movie, it felt like film was the right choice. You know, we were kind of paying homage to where surfing came from, I wanted to pay homage to where, you know, surf filmmaking came from and what Bruce had done. And, and you know, I was a film school snob. I, 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 we shot film in film school back then and we cut our editor reels on film. Um, the movie was cut on digital, but it was just that approach, but it was really the look, you know? And, and I do think, I, I've always felt that film has a bit more of a nostalgic thing. And, and that's changing now as we go like cycle through all these different versions of digital. Um, but I, at least at that time, you know, almost 20 years ago, really felt I wanted it to feel kind of important and, and like it, it was coming from a, a thoughtful place. And at that time in particular, surf movies were VHS and DV cam, and they were very just you know, kind of disposable. I mean, there's been a few classics, but a lot of them, you, it was a, a clip of the week attitude. And I wanted to make it more of an evergreen project. And, um, you know, you, you bleed for it. It was a lot more expensive. I remember my brother-in-law who builds houses sat me down and said, gosh, if you made that same movie and you shot video, it would have cost you, you know, a quarter as much and you would have made so much more money and you could have instantly made another movie. And I was like, yeah, but it wouldn't be the same movie. And even today, I argue it might not have been as successful had we gone that route. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, I think on the flip side, especially now, you know, doing a television series where we have red cameras and Alexa cameras that shoot these high end, gorgeous digital video, you know, iPhone's got a commercial on TV that makes their footage look amazing. And um, for a documentary, particular it's brilliant because you can shoot more and you can storytell and let the camera roll and not worry about the cost once you've invested in the gear and i think also you know jace with with your you know mirror trail project mile i think the distribution you know we can get these films out digitally yeah. now in a way that you couldn't have before when you know jason and i graduated from film school as well okay you go you make an impact film and you take it to film festivals and maybe it gets bought and that's how you get a career and you know now 
kids make careers on YouTube. YouTube. And, yeah. You know? watch, kids watch kids playing video games, right? I mean, it's like such a different <laughs> world, you know. And, I mean, man, again, you can self-distribute now. There's so many amazing options out there. But, like, yeah, literally, there were, like, what? It was, like, Sundance like maybe two or three other film festivals. Yeah. You, if you didn't get into one of those, then the four or five people that were buying movies at the time, you know, there weren't as many streaming. You didn't have, you know, all these yeah. streaming networks looking for, for content. I mean, you had a lot of channels, but nowhere, you didn't have like four or 500 channels like you have now. So it was a much different time. Um, and yeah, it's, it's also like at least single fin yellow. I mean, the, 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 the technology, the, the quality of the image has improved so much um, from then till now. Yes. Like, like I had a PD-150, actually. Um, and, you know, and then, you know, and it's funny. In my mind, I always think, God, oh, it looks so good. And then now you go back and you watch it, and you're just like, ugh. <laughs> you know, it wasn't as good. It was a very clean. They, they were very good, and they were much better than anything better. Like, even, like, the broadcast cameras from that time had a very, like, a TV look, which is kind of a different frame yeah. rate, a different motion blur. It just didn't look, like, cinematic. And those were a huge step forward in that world, but they they still had like a, a clinical look is the way I would describe it. There was like a lack of like soul or like there was just a feel that film had. And it took them a while to get that down. They, they did eventually, obviously, but it, but it was probably what, 10 years, I'd say 10. I think the 5D Mark II was the first cheap camera that I looked at it and said, ooh, that, you know, you know, that was at least shooting HD that was cheap and affordable that, that had like an amazing, that, that look, you know, that kind of feel. Yeah, on, on Bella Vita, we shot 35 millimeter film and I mixed in some 5D. And that was that was what when I was kind of blown away that a lot of people and I had a phenomenal color correction done. And, yeah. you know, they would add a little film grain and really get it to all match seamlessly. And, you know, my cousin, who's a very good DP, he, it was tough. Like he got most of it right. But every now and then I could trick him. So. That that was when I, my, the light bulb kind of went off, and I said, "Okay, we've sort of caught up with with yeah. the technology." And it is easier, so there's that, <laughs> and cheaper. <laughs> yes. So 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 as part of my homework to prepare for this podcast, I, I watched Bella Vita, and I really enjoyed it. Really beautiful film. Um, and so one of the questions is, you know, a lot of the uh, the camera work you're in the ocean shooting surfers, you know, I mean, can you do that with film? I mean, and, and, you know, the other thing that kind of fascinates me about that is there, the level of sort of, you know, there's a, a level of athleticism that's involved in doing just that. And it never gets really recognized. It's all, you're just hidden. You're behind the scenes that whoever's, you know, holding the camera and film, shooting the, the surfers, getting amazing photography. Um, the focus is on the story and on the, the guy on the surfboard with his toes over the nose and, you know, whatever. And uh, talk a little bit about that process because I'm fascinated with the whole in the water thing and, and, and capturing that. Well, the, the first rule to being a good director or at least film producer is you surround yourself with people who are better than you. And I was lucky enough to have an old, old friend, uh, Scott Kasanoff, who is a lifelong commercial production. Just, you know, he goes, he grinds, but his passion's always been swimming in the ocean. And so when I made Single Fin Yellow, we literally ran into each other at an in and out over lunch and hadn't seen each other for years. And I said, oh, I'm doing a surf movie. He's like, I, I got to swim for you. Let me swim. And he took that role on that project 
and I uh, unfortunately got stuck on land because I love being in the ocean and I, I swim a lot now, but um, I used to look at my water still photography and it would always be like the top of somebody's head or somebody's feet. I'm like, God, I'm just horrible at this. So Scott is, you know, is one of the great ones. And, and he did that work on Bella Vita with 35 millimeter film. And so that's a camera that, you know, I'm, I'm looking at you guys on Zoom holding my hands up, but it's probably two, three feet long. And I would say over 20 pounds. It's, we think we had an airy, oh gosh, testing my memory now, but it was one of the airy film cams. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, our hands down say, as far as action sports photography, what the water, especially cinematographers do, because you got to get the whole shot nothing against the still people because I do stills and it's equally difficult, but you only need one good frame um, to get the motion right. It's because the, the whole playing field is moving. So the subject you're trying to catch, like any sports photography can be difficult because they're moving, but then the photographers in this world of water and, and all these things moving around them. Um, you know, another person who's good at is Tyler Emmett, who you guys talk to. He doesn't, he doesn't wear that badge as well as he probably could because he's great in the water. But, you know, it tends to be people who love film and photography, but really love surfing in the ocean. And and they are really athletic. And and for some weird reason, there's maybe five or six top tier ones who all came from the New Jersey area. And I've never been able to figure that one out. <laughs> but um, it's a small group. You know, Scott Soans is a guy I've worked with on commercials who's absolutely fantastic. And um I, um, I, I try whenever I can, Jeff, to grab the camera and get out there, but I realize it's, those guys always seem to get better stuff. And, you know, equally, um, because of COVID, this project I'm doing recently, we thought we would be in uh, Japan and we weren't able to go. And so we hired um, people in country and it was really difficult to find someone. You know, normally you would fly in that specialist, but in our new world of kind of remote shooting and local hires only because of uh, the global dynamic, um, you, you really start realizing how talented these specialists are. And, and, you know, it, it's tough. It makes it, it makes it a little tricky. Um, we ended up flying a camera over. We couldn't literally couldn't find that like a red water camera, which in Hawaii, there's probably, you know, 20 or 50 of, there doesn't one doesn't exist in Japan, so I had to figure out a way to get it over. Um, <laughs> so it's you know it's yeah. those little logistics. We're we're a small the, the surf tribe's a small dysfunctional family, and we all kind of know each other somehow or another. Yeah. Did you think that like <laughs> Italy would be like passed by Portugal while you were making Bellavita? Because like obviously now with <laughs> Nazareth, that's become like the big now you know the HBO series and like the big giant surfing thing <laughs> did you know yeah. about that before i mean had you it, at that point i don't think nazare was on my radar you know yeah. um and uh obviously i knew by being in the mediterranean it was a tall order to do a surf project but um you know the the atlantic certainly delivers and i had worked on something in um in ireland which put me in a boat in in very scary surf situation so i had seen the power and uh yeah more hats off to 
Garrett McNamara and everything he does, he's he's a madman. If you haven't seen 100 Foot Wave, it's definitely yeah. worth checking out. No, it's fantastic. You, the other place where the digital stuff is really fantastic, we, we were chatting a little bit before how now now you're not in an edit bay, you're working remotely. So you have an editor, you know, he's at home, you're, you know, watching stuff, you know, that normally you would want to be in the bay with the editor and all of that. So that's that's changed quite a bit. And that process has obviously become quite different. Yeah. And, you know, I think I pursued this path because I that one of my first jobs out of film school was a nine to five at a production company where we weren't shooting anything in L.A. At that time, everything was being shot in Canada. And so I I hated it. It was paper pushing and whatever. And it was my first job. So I was grateful. But I was I, I knew quickly that I needed to be out and free, quote unquote. And so, you know, the freedom of where we are now, I guess, is a good thing that people can kind of work from everywhere. We have a person on our team who's in New York and we have me in Santa Barbara and another editor on the other side of the country. And, you know, the project lives in L.A., but the the, the talent can kind of be anywhere. And that's maybe one good thing that's come out of the the last <laughs> two years. You're, of course, you're, you're making them edit on flatbeds, right? Or moviolas? Of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. And so. they just... Put an iPhone by their screen so I can keep tabs. No, it's a very digital world and it is fascinating. I mean, the Avid lives in an office and we can all log into it um, from our various places in the world. And and so I can look at footage and look at rough edits and, you know, call someone up and say, oh, let's talk about this. So it is pretty extraordinary. we, we waste a lot of time with it not working. <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a tech chain in Slack, right? Where everyone's like, ah, oh, my Avid's crashing, but such is life. Well, well, since you're sort of talking about this project, you, um, you want to tell everyone a little bit about what it is, where it's going to air and what the gist of it is? Yeah, it, you know, it's, um, it's funny how life works because really right before the pandemic, I had all my focus on going back to features and I'd written a couple screenplays, one that I wrote that I felt was in a place to be financed and do as an indie film. And then the world kind of shut down, uh, as we all know, and independent film financing definitely got a lot trickier. And within that time frame, an old friend of mine called uh, a guy I knew since I was a little kid who does fantastic work. Um, he's done the decade series on CNN, 70s, 80s, 90s. And um, he worked on Band of Brothers back when he was at Playtone. But his name's Chris Cowan. And Chris called me and said, hey, you know, what do you think about doing a, a surf show? And I said, gosh, I've been trying really hard not to do surfing, you know. Um, and not not as much because I don't love it. I just know how hard it is. You know, production, once I switched to doing commercials, you often got the call that they wanted surfing as part of it because that's, they look at your reel and go, that's what you know. And you quickly have to kind of tell people, look, you, you can't produce surfing. Like you can, you can produce a great team. You can produce everything. Mother nature is going to do what it wants to do, you know? And, and it's very hard to say on Tuesday, we can go shoot and get that frame you just pulled out of surfer magazine it was the best day ever yeah. at you know chopu yeah so you you get into that and and the the concept of doing a, a tv series was very intimidating and i i had been in rooms before where we had pitched stuff and that always was a bit of a, a roadblock and the thing that i love about chris cowan and he's a look let's you know, we're not doing a surf movie. We're not pitching a surf movie series. We're 
pitching a documentary series about people who love and are passionate about surfing. And, um, and that worked, you know, and, and that was kind of the journey we went on. And, and the hook for us was taking a look at Japan because surfing just had its first time ever Olympic debut at the Tokyo Olympics, which were supposed to happen in 2020. And because of the pandemic eventually happened in 2021. Um, so we kind of built um, a thesis, but it's again, very documentary. So you kind of go in th saying, this is what we think we can do. And we casted it and um, the, um, the show we're editing now is becoming its own thing. You know, it's the, the thing you dream up, the thing you shoot, the, the thing you end up editing are, are all three different uh, beasts. Um, but uh, I've been uh, challenged probably more than any project I've ever done on this one. Um, and uh, I guess that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm excited. You know, I'm just starting to see kind of rough edits come along. It, I'm being careful with my words because we won't be released till probably spring, summer 2022. And, um, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces, but um, the parent company is Disney Plus. So it's a Disney Plus worldwide streaming show. And um, it's it's pretty amazing to do something that I've done with a backpack and a Bolex with all of the support of a company like that. That said, there comes a lot of things I'm not used to, um, you know, more permits, more legal, more rules that need to be followed. And then, you know, very formal COVID protocols and keeping our set safe. And we were dealing with people who were going to the Olympics. So God forbid, you know, you got anyone sick because you came and interviewed them. So it was a very high stress kind of high. Um, it was it was a producing art. And then as mentioned, a lot of it was shot remote. So for the first time ever, I wasn't grabbing a camera and telling a story. I was logging onto Zoom and dealing with a team in Australia or a team in Japan or a shooter who's in Portugal. Um, and so that was a little surreal, you know? And uh, I guess how that executive producer role starts at 7 a.m. LA time and goes all the way to 7 p.m. Japan time, which is 4 a.m. LA time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and just all the lost frequent flyer miles, right? I mean, you're not going to be able to take yourself on a surf vacation like you normally would after this, right? No, there's a whole racket that I really enjoy about doing these that got thrown out the window. Yeah. But, you know, I, my son's nine. He's obsessed with surfing. To be able to be here and get to surf with him, you know, daily and then still make a, make a documentary series. You know, it's an eight-part series on paper, so it's it's a big undertaking and a lot of media and to kind of get to be home more than normal has also been nice so and jason did you grow up out, did you grow up outdoorsy did you grow up sort of you know what was sort of your childhood and you know that got you sort of to this point where you're like film and surfing <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's you know it's funny because i uh, obviously get to talk to a lot of people who do what i do and most of them grew up loving surfing but i i first fell in love with film um my cousin, Christopher Baffa, ASC, if I don't mention that, he gets very upset. He was interested in film as a young guy, and he's a bit older. So I was five when I first saw him doing a, a Super 8 film project, even older than the Bolex. And um, I thought, gosh, that's what I want to do. And I, I was very artistic growing up. Like, I love painting and drawing, and I would write a little bit. And so I think, you know, this concept of, wow, here's a medium where it all comes together. Um, 
and and then we would you know i grew up in los angeles but we were a little bit inland so it was always trips to the beach and summer to the beach and when i was at the beach my parents couldn't get me out of the water um so i think it was just kind of through geography that the surfing thing took a little longer as soon as i could be obsessed with it i moved as close to the ocean as possible and even took time off kind of after college and went on walkabout as i joke and spent time in hawaii and mexico and you know did all my surfing and and so again i was lucky that you know when the two finally did come together it was nothing i ever planned or foresaw um you know i, I look back on it and i wonder what might have happened had i just focused on film and not surf you know but we they, we can always look back and wonder I remember kind of thinking you were crazy for like not diving right in. Cause you know, I dove right in like right out of school. I was like getting punched in the face for however long I got punched in the face in the industry. Like most people do. I'm like, man, he's crazy. He's going to, you know, then now, now I look back, I'm like, Oh no, he was smart. I'm like, I should have taken a year off or two years. You know, the industry wasn't going anywhere. You know, I should have enjoyed, enjoyed taking that time. And, you know, my youth while well, I still had it and, and done some stuff. I you know? don't know. I wouldn't beat yourself up. You know, <laughs> I, I, I definitely, but, yeah. Yeah. And in 2019, when I was working on my scripts, I definitely thought, gosh, I should have just dug right in. Had I yeah. done that, you know, <laughs> yeah. I actually, I don't know if I ever told you this fits, but what I remember definitively sitting in my parents, my, my dad has a little down there in the same house I grew up mm -hmm. in. And um, I was trying to decide if I would go to Loyola Marymount film school. I'd go to USC on the waiting list to get into film school, which is what my cousin had done mm -hmm. or Northwestern. Mm -hmm. uh, also would have been for film. And I called my cousin because I wanted his advice. He had at this point graduated and he was making films for Roger Corman. And he said something to me that's haunted me to this day. He said, well, any of those schools would be great. Or you could just show up on set tomorrow and I'll put you to work on a Roger Corman film. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the one I really was like, oh, had I done that? Yeah. You know? And you know, for those who don't know, Robert Corman, Roger Corman famously was doing low budget films for years and gave a lot of people their jump into Hollywood, you know, and so much of film is learning, you know, mentorship, learning the craft hands on and and making connections. So I think in a place like that, they had it all, you know, and instead I went surfing. I think we all have that moment, though. Like I, I like, you know, my first job when I got out, this date's me and Jason, the other Jason a little bit too, was I was a, the night PA on third rock from the sun, the sitcom, you know, way back when the first season. And, uh, you know, because of like, I was the one there at night, I ended up there a lot with the, the associate producer and the editor, you know, and they were really nice and they'd show me stuff. And, and the, the, the dumbest thing I ever did, they offered to mentor me. And I'm yeah. like, no, I want to make movies. <laughs> you know, you're just like yeah. only to end up like in a lower level editing anyway, like 10 years later after like five or six years of just pain and misery and getting punched <laughs> in the face and horrible hours, horrible treatment and the usual, you know, entertainment industry uh, experience, you know, but um, no. Like, yeah. Really, I, I don't know. You know, I think about this now with yeah. kids too, what, what the advice is. And I think, on one level, I mean, you look at my story and sometimes it, it, the, the path, you don't necessarily have it defined. Maybe it's like a good hike. You, you got a map, you got a, a destination, but you're going to end up getting deviated at some point uh, on any adventure. And working in the film industry is certainly an adventure. It's not a normal gig. Uh, and if you like adventures, it may be good for you. If you don't, it might not be the best place. But I do think, you know, like you said, it, 
that opportunity to 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 get mentorship to make connections those are two key things that um you know if if you work hard and you love the the world and and you you dedicate yourself to it i think you can go far and when you're like fitz and i and you say no i'm gonna be a filmmaker i'm gonna do my own yeah. thing sometimes you bang your head against the wall a little longer yeah <laughs> Well, I think, you know, it's because there were, again, we chatted about this, a little bit about this earlier, but not just the fact like the film festivals and getting your work sold, but, you know, now you have YouTube, you have phones. Keep in mind, none of that existed when we came out. I mean, everything, yeah. it was a very film world and that was a very expensive, very cost prohibitive, um, almost unattainable in a lot of ways, medium to work in, you know, like you couldn't go on your phone and shoot a little thing and put it up on the internet. That just wasn't there. So it was like, Again, fest it was festivals, or if you were lucky, you got some kind of distribution or you sold it, and I don't even know where it aired, but it was a much different thing. Now you have all these sort of like different pathways, you know, and I think Jason made a comment about how some of our film school friends went on to do like music videos and stuff, and those were the successful guys. That was like the farm system kind of in the 80s and the 90s before MTV decided to turn into a reality TV network, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so it's kind of now all that exists. So, so there is like a much better uh sort of pathway to do it you know than, than there was for us when we came out you know there is and then at the same time it's so saturated it's yes. how do you define yourself you know yeah. and, and how do you stand out and and i think that's true for still photographers and filmmakers alike um you know anyone in the arts probably to be fair but uh and, and ironically enough that was something i did think about when i went to make singleton yellow that oh I'll do this surf film, but this will be my calling card because plenty of people in Hollywood love surfing. If I knock it out of park, then I'll get my scripted feature. <laughs> it doesn't quite work that easily. No, either, but you know. no, the people want to peg you is like you're saying you're the surf guy. Oh, you're the surf guy. It's like, hey, we're making a surf thing. Let's call Jason Baffa, you know, but if it's not, you know, it's very hard. People really want to pigeonhole you in this in this industry for for what you do, and it's very hard to break the shackles of that sometimes, you know. And it's also hard because, as you probably agree, it's such a blessing to be able to make a living doing something creative and being in this industry that you don't want to 100%. like forget that or not not appreciate that that's what you're doing. But it does sometimes get frustrating if if you're always doing the same over and over again. You know, you're a creative person. You want to be creative and, you know, that's not limited in your mind. It's just limited in what people seem to want to let you do. <laughs> yeah, which is, you know, I, I guess I've seen it from both sides now being on more of the executive producer side. It's a safer bet, right? If you look at somebody's work and go, well, they've done well with that, you know, Um so it's it is it's it's all about that risk mitigation kind of almost from the top level and um, you know, uh, the, the neat thing again, though, is these platforms allow people to take creative risks on their own. There is less cost overhead. It's not, I'm not saying it's, you know, totally inexpensive, but if you have one of these cell phones, you could effectively go shoot a movie if you want to. And so there's not a lot of excuses, I guess. Um, but it's, uh, it, I think you just gotta love it, you know? And, and that's why that, it's it's a bit of a cliche, but if you love what you do and even the lane you pick within these lanes, then at least, you know, I I love when I can show up on a day of shooting and I don't have to wear shoes. It's just like, oh, yeah, amazing. right. <laughs> well, let's be honest. I mean, you know, I, maybe you should have gone and worked for Roger Corman, but but we had fun. Yeah. I mean, college was Absolutely. fun. <laughs> I wouldn't we be here talking college. to you. And film school was fun, man. I mean, that was just like, 
you know, they, they covered insurance. They had all the equipment. I mean, it was still insanely expensive because we were shooting film and that came out of your pocket. So we're, I mean, what, like, I think three, four, five, six thousand was like the low end of what people were paying to do a film. So now you could buy a really good camera an editing system and whatever for that. You know, that was just, that was just like film and processing, by the way, not any of the other whatever else your movie cost on top of that. I mean, it was crazy, but I mean, it was so much fun and we all worked together for them. You know, I mean, it was a very collaborative thing, you know, I mean, I mean, that was kind of a nice experience, you know, um, and like a nice way to learn, I thought, you know, well, and, and, and our school in particular, and, and they've maybe changed a little bit, but at Loyola Marymount, I remember the reason, you know, going back to that story of which school did I want to choose? I knew at LMU, I would show up and they were going to hand me a Bolex and be like, go, go make something where yeah. SC had a much more regimented, much more like Hollywood, which isn't a horrible thing. I think you learn quickly how the business works, but, um, LME was a little free. And if I look back at my career, I think it suits me, you know, that, that freedom of exploration and just grabbing a camera and making a movie. It's still something I love. So, yeah, uh, that's, that's, can't yeah, over- that's th- you cool. can't overthink all these choices. Sometimes. No, you can't, you can't, you can't change it now anyway. So what's the point, you know, it's, it's kind of cool that we both made it, you know, our friends, Matt and mountain mountains doing really well. So it's like, you know, we have a couple friends that really made it. Um, you know, yeah. Matt, Matt Van Wagen is executive producer yeah. and survivor. Yeah. Now. yeah. And, so uh, it's, it's, it's been fun to see people yeah. keep up with what they do. Um, what advice would you give somebody who wants to, combine their passion for like the outdoors and filmmaking kind of making a career out of that passion yeah i and i i think you guys asked tyler emmett this question and he had a good answer i was impressed by him because he's certainly someone who's done it um you know i'll fall in the cliche pick that lane that really does inspire you that you would do tomorrow with friends, if there wasn't a paycheck on the other side of it, I think that's a great place to start. Um, but then kind of as I mentioned with Single Fin Yellow is I think also figuring out your take on it. You know, how can your perspective make your work stand out? Whatever that is, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a visual perspective. It could be a story angle or, you know, at the time I made Single Fin Yellow a narrative in the surf world hadn't followed one board it had always followed surfers so it you know it wasn't a new idea there's been movies that follow one item before and it it was something i think in film school i wanted to do bit so it was fun for me to finally put it together through surfing but um you know it got me a lot of attention just because it was kind of a different take albeit very simple you know um so yeah i'd say that and and i'd say you know, the, the one thing about all these tools um, and the ability to do so much and to be able to do so much yourself, I was talking to a film teacher at USC and he said, you know, the one thing I see with students here when they come in is they don't necessarily know how to collaborate. They don't understand how to share what's in their head with the people they need to help them execute because they're so used to doing it all themselves. And that's great. And maybe we live in a world now where you can get a gig, you know, through an ad agency doing TikTok videos or whatever and be an independent person. But I do think collaboration's huge. Um, And so, you know, learning how to even put a deck together where you can share it with someone and say, this is what's in my brain. Like, here's a download, you know, let's figure out how we can make this happen. Because at least as far as I'm concerned, I'm only as good as a, you know, call me a 
director, cinematographer, storyteller as the producing team I have behind me, you know, and, and if I can't, and I really learned that in the last year um, where I'm trying to convey a vision to people on the other side of the world that I'm never even going to meet in person. And here they are as an extension of me creatively, literally framing the shots and, and doing the work. So, you know, I think having that vision, focusing on something that you're excited about and, and, actualizing and realizing the best ways you can collaborate to make it happen. But those would be my three, I think, keys. That's great. And, and, you know, just as like, I don't know if I've ever told you this. I, I, I hope I did, but like you really inspired me too, to go out when I made my mile and a half, seeing you succeed in the work you did on single fin yellow, you know, it's like, Oh man, like, you, you know, it's, I'm trying to say this so it doesn't sound like an insult. It's like, Oh, Baffa did it. No, that's not what I mean. But I mean, it's like, you know, like here's yeah. this guy and, and, we were up at like 5 a.m. editing in bays next to each other and not sleeping because it was a much harder process. Editing was a much harder process then yeah. too. And like we go out and work on each other's films and, and what you know what I mean? So like seeing you do it, it was definitely like gave me a lot of like a confidence and whatever to like go on and, and, and do that, you know. And, well, um, I, and I love yeah. that. Thank you. Yeah. I, I don't know if you have said that. And it means a lot because it's like, you know, we, we do these things and obviously you want to make something good, but even more so if you can inspire people. I mean, that, you know, kind of that going back on that, picking something that you, you are excited about. For me, it's something I'm inspired by, you know, and, and if, if I'm not inspired or doing something that I feel could inspire, then that, that's where it falls short. That's where being a commercial director has been very hard for me. And I don't love my commercial work because I think it falls short in that where some people show up and they're just inspired to be making something and getting paid. Um, I wish my brain was that easy. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of need to take it a step further. And uh, you know, the the project you guys did fits was so inspiring, and I know it's oh, inspired thanks, so many people. You know, yeah, I, I've seen that through your journey with it, and it it is a special thing when you can kind of hit that whatever it is. You know, that that yeah. special thing. Oh, thanks, man. Thing. Yeah. And we both have these huge houses in Malibu now because of these. Yes, we do. Little- and so we race we race our yachts. We on weekends yes. we, we, we do yacht races, you know. You got the case of champagne and caviar, I I did, I did, thank Thanksgiving you. Thanksgiving good. Yeah. Oh. Speaking of champagne, do, do you have your own wine now as well? I, I see the Zio Baffa stuff on your Instagram. Is that is that your own wine? Can we plug that? We should plug Zio Baffa, yeah. I, yes. I'm always up for plugging it. Okay. When I was in Italy, um, we stayed with one of the characters in the film who's a winemaker, and I got to know him through uh, Chris Del Moro. His name's Pier Giorgio Castellani, and his family's been making wine for over 125 years now, I think. And um, when the film was done, he had this great line with me. He said, uh, you know, Jason, we should do another project because grown men, as they get old, if they don't have projects, maybe they get together once in a while and get drunk or something. But if you have a project, we can stay in touch. Let's do a wine. And I was like, okay, sure. So um, all I am is the window dressing fits. I uh, I helped kind of creative direct and scheme up the, the project, but what was inspiring about it and the reason I wanted to do it is he does a lot of private label stuff. He said, let's do our own label. We're going to call it Zio Baffa, which was my nickname in Italy. It means Uncle Baffa, which my Italian's so bad. I didn't even know that while I was there, but I guess I'm like a crazy uncle guy. So that's what everybody called me. So we're doing Zio Baffa wine, but they're organic and they're sustainably produced. And the packaging is via recycled materials. 
and we're even doing this eco twist cork, which is sustainably harvested. So it's really got a neat um, take on it. And when we started, it was now years ago, um, even organic wines were kind of frowned upon. The industry sort of come and, and caught up with our little project. It doesn't mean we're a huge project because of it. It's a fun grassroots thing, but um, Zeobafa organic wine, it's actually very well distributed on the East Coast, a little harder to find on the West Coast. I use um, wine.com to send it to my friends. So since you plugged yeah. me, I'll send one over to the office there. And... Yeah. Hey, hey, hey everyone. Ah. Uh, yeah. Hey, everyone. Go to the show notes to wine.com and look up Zio Baffa, Uncle Baffa. You, yeah. you know, the one really fascinating thing for me, though, because as we jumped into it, I was doing a lot of commercials, was being on the other side of a brand owner. And, um, you know, the decisions you make and looking at your budget and how you spend budget and the irony of, yeah, you know, maybe we shouldn't go produce something slick. We should pay some Instagram influencer who's got a lot of attention. <laughs> like I understand, you know, a bit more about some of the decisions that are made. So it, it's been fun to be involved in something and be involved in a, like a normal product, you know, right. art, art, film. Yeah. It's, you know, we make stuff, but it's not like there's widgets and, and costs, you know. Yeah. Now I'm curious because I get a lot of calls from people making hiking or outdoor films. Do you get a lot of surf film calls from like young filmmakers or people like aspiring to do it? Does that? Yeah, I do. And, and you know, I always say, uh, do something else. Don't yeah. your day job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you yeah. know, I get, I get hit up and, um, it, it, it's changed, you know, like everything, a lot's changed, uh, and it will continue to change. I think the interesting thing for surfing, my first, two films really were released in the DVD age where you, it was a real business, you know? And I think before that VHS where the surf shops would buy these titles and stock up for the holidays. And, you know, moms or dads would go in to buy gifts for their kids' friends. And, and that was, you know, you could kind of go, oh, all right, we'll do X amount of units if it's good. And if it's really good, you might hit this and you could build a budget off that and, and go shoot a movie. And once digital came in and I think, more content became free, um, the value of those films got harder to analyze. And, um, you know, now we're in a space where every pro surfer travels often with someone on retainer who shoots their sessions and that goes to their social media and, um, you know, that goes to their sponsors or whatever. And, you know, if, if I was a young person and growing up in a, a beach town and wanted to do surf filmmaking, I'd find the young, really good surfers. That would be one of the first things. And yeah. again, go network. You know, it's that same thing we talked about earlier, because that's a bit more of that model if, if you really want to do it. Um, or go, you know, go go figure out a project and try to define yourself. So it's it's a tricky one right now. I think action sports has gone through many different versions of itself and um surfing's having a bit of a moment you know our series is coming out i think the world surf league who runs the contest the the championship tour has a series coming out on apple and then um, we mentioned the 100 foot wave so surfing's kind of having this media moment and it'll be interesting you know we'll see maybe there'll be a lot of work for all the aspiring young surf shooters out there yeah I think, um, you know, it's funny you mentioned DVDs and that was a thing like we we didn't we were debating whether or not to even sell them. Yeah. We made like so much money on DVDs. And this is what, seven years ago. 
I, I, I don't know how you did on Bella Vida, and I'm just saying this, and maybe this has changed because it's still another seven years down the road, but, like, part of it was just, like, we were selling them ourselves, so it was, like, you know, like, you know, you go on iTunes, you go on Netflix, you go on whatever. Those platforms are not designed for the filmmakers to make money. <laughs> let's let's just no. be honest. They're not. It's not that you don't make anything, and, and it's great because your work gets out there and it gets seen, but, you know, those are giant corporations who are created these platforms which are very expensive and all the credit to them and that's great but they're not designed for the filmmakers to get you know to get rich um but when you especially the small smaller films right but like man i'll tell you having those dvds having your own products this is what i'll say to anyone that wants to do a surf thing or or hike thing or anything have some kind of merchandise that you're selling yourself because it's like that's direct to consumer exactly maybe you won't millions of people won't see it that through that platform but everything you sell you get the majority of the profit from it and that you know that uh that was a nice it was that was a nice thing for us i i I don't know again i don't know if dvds are still you know whatever but way more people bought them than we thought would you know yeah which is amazing we definitely felt the other side of the downturn i think on belvita and um but um you know, it, you bring up an interesting point about streaming and people's perception. And, you know, I get a lot of people say like, oh, your your movie's on Netflix. You're killing. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Look at that. I'm holding up the DVD I bought of Bella Vita right now. Just just just. And that was me. limited edition packaging fits. You got a very nice no, well, of piece gonna, of work there. It was you. another bad business decision yeah. by me, but they're beautiful. <laughs> they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of DVDs, uh, I I live in the town that has the last blockbuster, and you actually can go and rent DVDs. and And we've we don't do this often, but if we have guests in town staying with us, we'll often you know one night go there. It's kind of like a walk down a you know nostalgia lane, and you you see all these movies, and you're like, this is really a great interface. For like picking something to watch, it's so much better than anything on TV. You know, like you know, searching or scrolling. It's forget that. Just walk around the ailes, and it's awesome. So uh, you know, maybe, maybe there'll be a resurgence. Maybe that's our someday. idea. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we need a digital walk-in store where you, you can swipe. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Edit that With that out popcorn. Of so we can yeah. Do that. <laughs> this is, yeah. <laughs> I have one bone to pick with you. It's a very small one. I'm but, ready. Okay. So, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes, but one of J- Jason made an inspired, you did two films at Loyola as an undergrad, which we were, you did a 360 and then you did a 460. His 360 is a legendary film that still holds up to this day called Little Joey. And um, it's on YouTube and you can watch it. The only thing, and this is my one, you did not give me stunt driver credit. <sighs> you know. My only opportunity ever to get stunt driver credit was on Little Joey because that's my truck. You'll see it. This is a very prominent part of the story. And I was driving it, and he didn't give me stunt driver credit. So I, I just, you know, that could have been my Lee Majors, you know. Um, uh, what was the show? You, you could have had a, a right? whole different career. I yeah. could have, you know. But, but <laughs> all he, my fault. I'm going to yeah. take this opportunity to publicly apologize <laughs> Thank to you. Fitz. Thank and you. I will, I will make sure I add it to the liner notes of the YouTube posting. <laughs> when the criteria collection um, of uh, I'm not Joey sure. Comes out. <laughs> you know, now yeah. this film, some god, 25 years later. How I don't know if it's politically correct. If there's some things I'm embarrassed by, but oh really? At the know. time, it, yeah. it was a bit of a crowd favorite, wasn't it? Yes, it, it was, was pretty fun because we would do these little films and you'd screen them, and for whatever reason, this one. 
ended up being screened as a trailer before like the movie of the week. Remember that? So yeah, I think I did. It, like, yeah, had, yeah. it had a little, it had a run, it did. I guess we yeah. can say now. Um, and I just, I've been downhill ever since I've been trying to live up to little Joey ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was cool. Like the great thing is it's so creative too. Cause like the 360, you weren't allowed to do sync sound. So you couldn't have actors. You couldn't have an, any dialogue. I mean, you could do voiceover, I guess. And, and if you really wanted, but so it's, the whole story is told, you know, without any like dialogue or anything. And it just came out really creative. So it was super fun. Well, and, and for yeah. the land of the listening, the uh, yeah. elevator pitch is the revenge. Little Joey is the story of a playful young scooter who is stalked by a menacing death truck. Mm-hmm which that's, was my that's truck. the line yeah, yeah. <laughs> well and truth truth be known the, the old huge truck that i was supposed to have show up remember it didn't show up it yeah it's being i think yeah. on the day if you were ac slash you know yeah. whatever you were doing like five jobs yeah like, well we can use mine so next yeah. thing we know we're art, art directing his car to look yeah. menacing <laughs> covering it with mud and there yeah. might even be a disney uh, uh <laughs> Yeah, mini mouse on your trail. Yeah, yeah, and so. then I think I about it. it. Yeah. It all comes full circle. No, it totally does. <laughs> <laughs> I got to thank everybody who's found my projects in- interesting because I certainly, the you know, you make these things. It's a little, now that I'm a parent, I realize it's a little like your children. You, you rear them and you, you give them all the love you can, but at some point you kind of let them go. Mine are too little to be let go, but the film certainly were and so to have audiences embrace it and um you know i've been very lucky to have international audiences embrace these projects and that's allowed me to keep doing it so um i want to thank all of them and all my close friends like jason fitzpatrick who through the years keep telling me that what i'm doing isn't dumb and i should keep doing it (laughs) that it's that it's easy and inspiring and I do it all with an ugly mug. Yeah, he does not have it's an ugly mug. I, I did call, say he had an ugly mug on our Ty Emmett interview, and I just wanted to make it's it quite clear. All right. he's, a, he's a very handsome gentleman who's winning the winning the hair battle between him and I quite 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 a bit right now, which is very. I'm like, how did you keep all that? Yeah, you know, I don't. Know. It but, looks um, like I, I would say, you know, we you, reader the uh, listeners can't see this, but. Looking at your face, Jason, I just say your hair has migrated down to your it chin. It has. It's all it's you know? all on my face now. <laughs> yeah. It's moved from my, my head to my face, you know, and it's got a lot grayer. I don't know. I don't know. That doesn't seem fair. No, man. Um, but no, I, I will say one thing, one more plug to watch Jason's movies. They're, they're really sort of beautiful and soulful and like really enjoyable. I think you would enjoy people enjoy them even if they weren't surfers. And I think if you view them in the context of what else was in the surf thing, it was a lot of like. And this is not bad because I enjoy this as well, but a lot of like shredding with like punk rock was pretty much everything you saw in like the surf movie from like the 90s. That was like the whole thing. And again, fun and entertaining in its own way. But he really, you really did an amazing job of creating like, you know, bringing back the feeling of like Endless Summer and like all those, early, you know, Big Wednesday and all of those earlier, you know, kind of more soulful surfer movies from the from from the old days. And, and I think it was it was yeah. needed and you did a great job of doing it. So I think people would really love them. So you should should definitely check them out. We'll have links in the show Thank notes. You. So you perfect. Know, yeah, you know we'll put those in. <laughs> iTunes is often a good place. Yes. Loopers. If you're if you're a golfer. Yes. And even if yeah. you're not a golfer, if you, if you have a golfer in the house, Bill Murray. Um, yeah. Yeah, Bill Murray and golf. It's yeah. you know it's not Caddyshack, but it, it's enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thanks you guys. Yeah, thanks so much for awesome. for coming on, Jason. Yeah, thank you. Um, 
I guess also we sort of plug your films or whatever. Can, can how can people find out what's going on with you? Like Instagram, website. Where where will we be able to watch this? Well, obviously it's going to be on Disney Plus. But uh, anything else? How can we keep up with you? Jason Baffa Films is is the website and Instagram. And um, yeah, check in, drop me a line, say hi, and uh, yeah, see see on see on TV. Yeah, well, thanks thanks Look again, man. Right. This has been great. <laughs> Thank you guys. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media. On Instagram at almostthere underscore AP or the Almost There Adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at Adventure Us Women. That's Adventure US Women. Jeff at The SoCal Hiker or me at The Mirror Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, please make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. On the next episode, we talk to guidebook author John Soares. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks.